Welcome to the show. You are now part of Reveal, the revenue intelligence podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people success, deal success, and strategy success. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and they share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. Devin and Sheena here, back for another episode. Sheena, we love data and facts and numbers on the show. It's kind of our thing. Yeah, we do. Uh, and I do my best not to track our podcast numbers too much. You know, I don't want to get too crazy checking it day to day, hour to hour, which is tempting. But Reveal did hit a milestone this week. Do you want to share what it is? Yeah. So after only four episodes, we have over 1,000 individuals who have tuned in to Reveal. Wow. That is fantastic. We'll line up the timing here. I couldn't resist the sound effects. I promised our sound guy, Dan, that we would find a way to fit it in. Uh, but seriously, big thank you to our listeners. We made this podcast to provide guidance to you know senior executives, aspiring revenue leaders. Uh, and it seems like we're really on to something, and uh, I'm enjoying the ride. Me too. Um, and while we're on this topic of numbers and stats, we had Tim Reister of Corporate Visions on our show, who is super, super research oriented. The most. Um, you know, he knows how to poke holes in any survey or mm -hmm. research that has been put out there um, and has conducted a ton of his own research through Corporate Visions as well. He's like Gong Lab's older sibling. Uh, they've been in the research game for a long time. I think that's why we, you know, big reason why we have that partnership is we both love that data first approach. And with that, we welcome Tim Reister of Corporate Visions. Today, we're joined by Tim Reister, who's the Chief Strategy Officer at Corporate Visions. You're also an author of multiple books. Pleasure to have you here at the Gong Office today. Thanks, Sheena. I'm, I'm glad to be here, you and the neon, yes. And the neon. <laughs> <laughs> we do have an amazing purple and pink gong neon sign in the office for those of you who are trying to envision what the neon is. Right, what is. I was referring to. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit more about your title, Chief Strategy Officer. How would you describe that in three words? <laughs> you pick the most abstract possible title and ask for three words. You pick the title. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it, it, it encompasses, like, I always say I'm in, I'm in charge of everything but responsible for nothing. Mm -hmm. But that's way more than three words. So maybe three words are like um, anything I want it good. to be. <laughs> okay. I mean, seriously, it's it's a... It's a rolling title in a, in a company our size, but really it looks at, let's make sure that we are on the edge of what we need to be in terms of the next in the areas that we work in, mm -hmm. do the research behind that to find things that will put us in a unique position and then productize that and get that into the market. So all that rolls up under a chief strategy title. Perfect, so maybe taking a step uh, back from that corporate visions, for those who are not familiar, could you mm -hmm. give us a little overview of what corporate visions is all about? Yeah, the name doesn't tell you. It could mean anything like my title, actually. <laughs> um, but what it really is, is a company that is focused on improving customer conversations. And the idea there is that customer conversations are the, the differentiation anymore. 
Like the last bastion of differentiation is a salesperson with their lips moving. When all products and services sound alike, look alike, smell alike, read alike, at some point somebody's got to move their lips and tell an amazing story and articulate value in a way that somebody believes it and do that better than the other person. And so we focus on that moment of truth, the customer conversation. And so how we do that then is, is really look at the customer conversation as the sum of three parts, a great message or story deployed in the necessary content, assets, and tools, and then the skills to use that said story and content assets mm-hmm. in a way that makes the difference. So messages, content, and skills. It looks like you have a background in marketing. How did you get into this field in general? Uh, I backed into it. As a journalism major, I, I had an option or an opportunity to join a corporation to be what was not called then but is called now a corporate journalist. Mm-hmm. So for three years, I rode with salespeople to customer sites. So this was in the healthcare industry. I'd ride with salespeople to the hospitals. I'd sometimes gown up and I'd interview doctors, radiologists, hospital administrators, and talk about why they chose this equipment and what it meant to them. Well, I started to hear very quickly that they didn't seem to recite all the features and benefits of the equipment. They started talking about their mission and the impact they were having. And it dawned on me as I'm in the field with salespeople that we want as companies to make our customers live in our story, but they live in their own story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what what we really need to do as companies is, is go join them in their story and help their story be better. Right. And so bringing that back from the field as a recognition that, frankly, marketing content and messaging and sales conversations were too company and product centric. So mm-hmm. as a journalist out there talking to customers, like a light bulb went off that said, there's got to be a better way. I'm not going to even blame salespeople. I'm going to blame companies and product management because they make the product the hero of the story. They make the company and the brand the hero of the story. And it's all the literature and all the promo on their new product. They can't help but sort of like become sort of company and product centric. Mm -hmm. And so they're to be customer centric and really make the customer a hero. And Mm -hmm. so this has to change back inside the organization. And they have to be more than say they're customer centric. They literally have to live in and join the customer in their story. What recommendations do you have for a rep who is trying to empathize and get in the shoes of the customer and live that story? Like what can they specifically be doing to understand that customer's reality? Well, it's interesting during a sales cycle too, because if you're in a so-called sales cycle, or now some people say the buyer's journey, we've reframed the whole thing to think of it as a deciding journey, that really the customer's on a deciding journey. They're trying to answer questions for themselves. And the salesperson can think about how to help the customer by thinking about what question the customer is asking themselves. So when you're initially talking to a customer, even though they're talking to you, does not mean that they want to do something different. In fact, that's what they're actually trying to figure out. You think because they accepted a meeting with you that this is a live deal. And the reality is they're literally trying to figure out if they're missing anything. Right. And so if you start answering questions about why you and not somebody else, they're psychologically like, what? Not so Mm -hmm. fast. Um, But they might not tell you that. They'll answer your questions and you continue to think you have a deal. And then that's why we see pipelines end up in 60, 70% no decisions, status quo, because the salesperson thought they had an active deal cycle and it turned out they didn't. There are questions that they must answer and your job is actually to facilitate the answers to those questions. And they sound different than your usual sales process, which says, oh, I'm doing discovery now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you think the customer's in gathering information phase. And the, really, the customer's going, should I be doing anything different? Mm-hmm. And the psychology of that 
changes the message and the dialogue. Hey everybody, in every episode, we have a data breakout, a quick sidebar to look at the data. Most prospects either don't recognize or can't articulate the root challenges they struggle with on a daily basis. So even if you sell a truly remarkable product, your buyers probably won't recognize the real value you offer to their organization. That's why you need to create your value with a powerful and persuasive message. In fact, Forrester Research found that 74% of executive buyers will give their business to a company that can create and deliver on a compelling vision, compared to vendors that are more straightforward and respond to a specific request. This isn't about touting your product's features, hoping that your buyer chooses you over your competition. That approach only puts you at a value parity with similar solutions and it forces a competitive bake-off. While customer acquisition is all about challenging the status of switching to your solution, Customer retention and expansion requires you to reinforce your position as their status quo. In fact, research shows that using a provocative, challenging message when you're trying to renew or expand business with your customers will increase the likelihood that they'll shop around by at least 10 or 16%. Okay, back to the interview. You talk about the science of messaging. What does that mean and how do you actually measure messaging and if it's working and if it's resonating? So the way I really think about it is that it's the decision science. So we're, we're studying neuroscience, behavioral economics, and social or cognitive psychology. And these are the invisible forces that shape how humans make decisions. And so if you can help marketing and sales understand how they can facilitate decision making, they can be more effective. And so it's not really the science of the message as much as it's the science of the decision. And then you can frame your messaging to, again, in this case, answer that why change question. Or later on, maybe they have to answer the why now question. Or very late, you have to answer the why should I pay this much question. So as the questions change, the psychology changes because you're in a different context in the, in the journey. So the science comes in with understanding what are they thinking at that moment? What is that question? And then as a result of that question, what do you need to do to respond to it? There's 40 years of neuroscience and cognitive mm -hmm. psychology behind how people frame value and how they make choices. You guys have published uh, a lot of research. I'm curious if you have one that sticks out as maybe your favorite or that's maybe just been most surprising. Yeah, I love them all because usually they're counterintuitive. Those we, are the best ones. Yeah, we always talk <laughs> about this great intentions, wrong instincts. It's like nobody's purposefully doing things wrong. Mm -hmm. They have good intentions because it feels right. And then when we're able to show that that's the exact wrong way to do it, right. it, it, it's like you have the right intentions, but the wrong instincts. I would say the most recent one. It was my favorite because it surprised me, but it didn't surprise the scientists we work with. So we work with Dr. Zach Tormala out of Stanford in the States, and we work with Dr. Nick Lee over at Work Business School in the UK. And we did some research because people were asking us, hey, is acquisition messaging, the way you approach a prospect, the same when you're trying to expand an existing customer? Like, should mm -hmm. we use the same process, the same motion, the same approach, the same words? And we're like, we don't see why not. Well, when right. we went out and studied it, we discovered that, in fact, it's different, and it's 180 degrees different, that the psychology of an existing customer, it's going to make sense now when I say it, yeah. is 180 <laughs> degrees different than a prospect. Mm -hmm. When you have a prospect, your job is to displace the incumbent, to disrupt their status quo bias. So we learn how to do yeah. that through provocation and insights and all these things. You go do that to an existing customer. Our research showed that 
they have the exact opposite reaction. They aren't mm -hmm. as likely to renew. They aren't as likely to pay more. They aren't as likely to buy the next thing. In fact, it throws the discussion open to, gee, if I have to change that much, if it's also new, why don't I look at everybody? Sure. And so it turns out, don't disrupt status quo bias when you're the status quo bias. Mm -hmm. So we were like, oh my goodness, because everybody's been down this path of provocation-based selling. And the scientists were like so nonplussed. They were like, yeah, you only proved what 40 years of social science has said is that status yeah. quo bias is a thing. Yeah. But it's now uh, enabled us to write a brand new book for B2B because cool. people didn't know that. Everything that's out there is about demand gen and how do you get people to move and do this and do that. And it turns out there's a whole other conversation that needs to be had in renewals, upsells, mm -hmm. price increases, and, and we even studied apologies and forgiveness. It's so much easier to expand an existing customer versus acquiring a new customer. You know, it's the same effort to, in terms of the messaging uh, that we invest in a new customer versus expansion. So I think that's really interesting and probably overlooked by a lot of folks. Well, what we find is that people are just using the same messaging. Like they're yeah. building a product launch, if you will, yeah. and they build one message. But you, if in one case you're trying to disrupt in the other case, you're trying to defend, reinforce, and build on, there actually needs to be an entirely different spin. So when you launch a product, you should have a message for the disruption mm -hmm. and one for the, I always say, in the morning, the salesperson might have to be a disruptor. In the afternoon, they got to yeah. be a defender. Yeah. But they're representing <clears throat> the same product. So right. you got to equip them for both conversations. For the sales leaders who are listening and are working on their expansion sales, what's the name of this, of this book? Yeah, it's called the expansion sale. So well, you, we, we well weren't done. really too clever. <laughs> uh, no, thank you for promoting it there. It's literally expa the expansion sale, and it comes out in January from McGraw Hill. And there's a website, expansionsale.com, and they can sure. see and read uh, a little bit about it, the testimonials and the videos. And, and, and it's research-backed, so that's what we always really love about yep. it. There's data. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're pretty excited about that. We're a no sponsor, no ad show, but I'm allowing the promo because I'm sitting here like, I wonder what's in this book. Like, where can I find the answers? So I'll be checking that out for sure. All right. Appreciate it. Uh, you work with companies across different sizes, right? You're working with like Fortune 1000 type of companies. You're working with high growth companies. Is there anything you can tell us in terms of the differences you've seen of who may be doing what better? If I'm at a high growth company, what can I be learning from more established companies in regards to messaging and positioning? That's a great question because there's a lot of assumptions about what might be different among company size yeah. or inside of verticals sure. or geographies. Yeah. And the thing we've learned because we, we, we focus on decision science-based content as opposed to, let's say, best practices, decision science travels really well because everybody's engaging humans and in the human decision-making process. And it turns out that's true all over the globe. It's true by vertical and it's true by company size. But if we've seen anything is like a lot of the high growth companies, to be honest, they are more on the acquisition side and they're usually a little bit smaller and they're sometimes trying to either crack into a market or go in where there's a big company that's not doing that thing very well. Mm -hmm. So they really need that very pointy, distinct point of view where people are willing to take the risk on a smaller company and, and try something different. So the why change story and why do it now is really important to those smaller high growth companies. Whereas the big companies, 70 to 80% of their number in any given year is gonna come from their existing customers. And when we've been, gone into those companies, we'll find ironically that 70 to 80% of their spend is on new logos. Mm -hmm. And they're just hoping and trusting that good service will make 
their their customers stay mm. and grow. And and so what we're finding is um, really great uptake for this expansion discussion with the bigger companies because especially as more and more big companies are trying to find recurring revenue streams, subscriptions, or contracts, things that have to renew and things that have that motion. Um, everybody's got what you know, they know what they need to do in the market and they they recognize what their mission is and we've got something to tell them. Any tips on rolling out new messaging, new stories to the field? How can companies make that effective? Yeah, the bottom line is that you need to see a level of observable practice and demonstrated proficiency just to expect that if you sent it out, they're going to use it and do it well. And so the most successful companies that we see are people that roll out a new product and a new message Mm -hmm. and push that out to the field and we'll work with them to help frame the message and give them a little training like, oh, here's how you tell it in a disruptive style. Here's how you tell it in a reinforcer style. Mm-hmm. And then they must submit themselves telling that story, like record it, submit it. And against a rubric, our consultants or, or their managers will review that. Mm-hmm. And we have clients doing pass fail and you're supposed to certify mm-hmm. on your new product message. And so observable practice, demonstrated proficiency, and then detailed coaching and feedback. And then based on the gaps in that, we've got little videos we can send to remediate the specific areas of where they tell the story poorly. For companies thinking about distinguishing themselves with their story, they need to make sure people are owning that story. And that's mm-hmm. that's the difference between those who are succeeding and failing with it right now because everybody can put out a new message. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But adoption and performance um, is is not automatic. How are you measuring whether a new strategic message that you're putting out into the field was successful or not? Are you kind of looking at pre-post revenue and are you taking out a pilot group and testing it with them first and seeing what the impact is? How are you measuring the success of that? It's actually some of both. But it really, even if it's a pilot group, it's still a little bit of before and a little bit after. Yeah. So we're working with a client right now who has got a team that's dedicated just to cross-sell and upsell. That's all they do is they take existing accounts and try to sell them a couple extra things. And that team's results have been declining the last three years. So they've got some good before. And so we're helping them build uh, a message around some uh, of the core upsell add-on type products. And we're going to do that in a region. Mm. And we're going to take 17 of these people who have that role and we're going to give them a new message and we're going to teach them on how to tell that story and they're going to practice and certify on it. And then we're going to look at their performance and mm-hmm. we can look at what they were doing before because the trajectory has been down and we ought to be able to see pipeline go up. We ought to be able to see deal size go up, penetration rates go up. That's the beauty of doing programs that are tied to these strategic initiatives. They have metrics inherently. Mm -hmm. When you have learning paths, generalized skills training, everybody's like, what's the ROI on that? It's going to be abstract. But if you stand up a program on this price increase and on this issue, on that issue, and the next issue, like those are tied to things that you can literally watch the meter. You're going to know. And I think that's exciting. That's where we should all want to be. Kind of one of our themes is like the unanswered questions, right? They plague sales teams everywhere. Instead of the, you know, maybe unanswered questions that play your sales team, Kind of what are the unanswered questions you're looking to solve with like your current research if you're able to share? Yeah, so our current research, like the one that's literally happening now as we speak, is which type of visual will have the greatest impact in remote online meetings? So as more companies move to inside sales, Mm -hmm. that means a lot more phone and web meetings. Well, it turns out that even outside sellers, 
on average, 50% of their sales touches are remote. So here we are in an online meeting environment. It just is. Phone calls and, and, and web conferences. And a lot of things that have been taught to salespeople have been around stand and deliver type techniques, like when you're in the room. Mm-hmm. But here you are sitting behind a box. Mm-hmm. And, and so whatever shows up on your screen can destroy, utterly destroy everything you're trying to do. And what we find is like in a room, you could put a slide up because you're standing there and you don't have to change a slide for minutes. But you need to change a slide every 5, 10, 15 seconds, give or take. There needs to be something happening, whether you're annotating on that slide mm-hmm. or you're animating building something on that slide. So we're going to test, like, how do the visuals have to move? What types of visuals get the best response? We'll test simple whiteboard visuals versus traditional stock photography and bullets against really vivid imagery with cool animation. So we've mm-hmm. got multiple types of imagery and what we're going to do is take the same exact story, same voiceover mm-hmm. recorded, and the only thing that's going to change is the visual, and we'll put people in the different test groups, and we'll see how intensely they respond to the story they saw. We don't want people to be guessing, and uh, we want to have a definitive answer and help people figure that out and be more successful. Do you have any early hypotheses on oh, what's going to come out yeah. of that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really no, eager no, to see so, this. <laughs> I mean, my personal, like, even when I keynote, I will put a, a, an easel pad up and I'll ask for an iMag camera and I will do an entire keynote with flip charts and markers because I'm a big believer in simple and concrete. The decision-making part of our brain is very simple and concrete. And many times our PowerPoint slides take abstract, complicated topics and only make them more abstract and yeah. complicated. So whatever it's going to be, it's going to be something that makes abstract, complicated, simple and concrete. So we know the voice is going to be PowerPoint. So now it's going to be a question of what type of PowerPoint. So we know it's going to have to be dynamic. We, we know that it's going to have to convey certain things. So we have like the three C's. It has to have context for urgency. Mm-hmm. No one moves to something else if they don't believe their current context is at risk. Sure. Then you have to have contrast for value. Mm-hmm. Nobody sees value unless they can compare it to what they're doing today and what you're talking about. And if there isn't enough contrast, nobody takes the risk of moving to get the same thing. So mm-hmm. whatever the visual is, you have to have clear contrast. And then concrete. It has to look like it's doable. Very simple, concrete visual that helps the person who's watching go, I could retell and I, I, could, I could probably redraw that story if I just had that slide. So context contrast and concrete. We know those three things are essential. We've touched on um, kind of this new era of selling, which is primarily remote. Um, And along with that comes a ton of data and analytics that can be run now on sales. Do you think this is a positive thing for the industry? Is it negative, neutral, uh, an opportunity? How do you view it? Because I'm a science guy, I think this is important. Um, It used to be organizations were very dependent on what sort of magic or voodoo was going on out in the field, right? And you had no way of knowing. And then we put CRM out there. And then what you realize is nobody put anything in the CRM until they had to. Right. So what I find, I I believe it's better. I know some salespeople would say it's not. But I think if you think on the whole for the organization, it's better. Now, that said, I think there's maybe some good data and some bad data. Some data can make you lazy. Other data can make you better. Can you give an example? Well, I mean, so let's say if you get some some predictive or intentional type data that uh, this person should be in the market looking for something, Mm -hmm. you might be too assumptive when you call them. Sure. One, then creeping them out, or two, being lazy in doing the work you should be doing because Mm -hmm. you think they're already in the market. 
and 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 just kind of lose like good practices in the way they should tell their story and engage the story mm-hmm. or find out who is or isn't using your messaging sure. and then be able to show them with performance metrics that it makes a difference because we haven't been able to make sales uh, adoption a science mm-hmm. and i think that yeah. has to happen so that's where the good news is we're really excited about that i just think that we don't want to assume that the data one will require less capable sellers. Oh, we have all this data. Right. It should be a slam dunk. Right. So not only do we maybe not get the assumptive seller, now we have everybody saying selling should be easy. I think the sellers that remain are going to have to be better at their craft, and this will help if right. if used wisely. I always say they used to have to be product experts, but now sellers can't be product experts because your website is up to date faster and more complete than you ever can be. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, sellers then could win by being process experts. But now customers are disrupting the process. They're yeah. coming in and get the information all over the place. Yeah. And then I, I, I always said it was the proposition. You know, even the story now, a lot of companies are putting out pretty good messaging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the difference we feel like the pinnacle this is going to is the person who can facilitate the decision, the person who can like make meaning for the customer. And you do that by being able to help them answer the question. So we've kind of, of course, because it's our opinion, moved on from product and process and proposition to persuasion and and decision science, facilitating the Mm -hmm. questions and answering those questions, literally enabling the buyer. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a a mad skill set to have. Gardner has put out some research on that front as well. We're overwhelmed with data. And the role of the best sales folks now is, is to help guide that decision-making process. Yeah, we'd like to think we always knew that because guiding decision-making means helping them answer their questions, like literally facilitating the answer to questions. And what we know is it's not one big question, should I buy or not buy? It's why should I change? Mm -hmm. Why should I do it now? Why should I pick you, not everybody else? Why should I pay that much? And then on the customer side, it's why should I stay with you? Why should I do more with you? Why should I forgive you? And so it's, you, it, exactly. We couldn't agree more with where Gartner's research has gotten to. And it sort of feels like it reinforces this idea that they're struggling to make decisions. They lack the confidence, but it is a series of decisions. So this is what you need to master is the ability to engage and help them answer those questions. What do you think sales executives, the number one thing sales executives should think about in 2020? I think sales leaders have a tendency to kind of like try, like a, a ma- look for a magic bullet. Like this year, yes. this is what we're going to do. And everybody's going to go through this and that's going to make the difference. And I think that is, is complete hogwash. There's different sellers and different territories require and have different needs. For example, don't teach this whole group to negotiate if they can't even fill their pipeline. Do something for those that cohort who can't fill their pipeline. And yeah, there's a cohort over here who are, who close deals, but they're unscrupulous discounters. Give them what they need. Mm-hmm. But there's somebody over here whose entire territory is dependent on renewals. They don't need any prospecting training or mm-hmm. provocative selling training. Sure, they they sure. need they need to figure out how to be great at renewals. So situational content and situational skills training is available. KPIs are available through all the tools that are out there. Now you need to take a more diligent approach to looking at your team and their territories. And saying, here's what they need this year. Like, I'd recommend managers look at their team of 10, because that's usually what they manage, and figure out based on their KPIs, where do they fall? And then make sure they get what they need, because Mm -hmm. the totality of your number is going to be based on those people getting better at the thing they're weak at, not just giving them all the same thing and hoping for the best. It's not a silver bullet. You got to be just, the beauty is we have the data and the technology to deploy and really the content chunked anymore that 
can help people where they need the help. Well, last, last question for you. Describe sales in one word. I love that everyone, if you didn't hear that, everyone takes a deep sigh at the end before they answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, psychologists. Being able to really understand and empathize with what's going on and then be able to come back with something meaningful and relevant that they can do for them. So, yeah. yep, I stick with my word. That's my final answer, psychologists. Accepted. That's great. Well, Tim, thank you for making some time for us during Dreamforce Week. You absolutely brought it, and uh, it was a pleasure having you. Thanks. Appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, uh, me and, what, 130,000 friends here in San Francisco this week. Just so a few. Thanks for just, you know, this little moment together. You're absolutely welcome. <laughs> thanks so much. Every week, we bring you a micro action. It can be as simple as something to think about or an action you can put into play today. Sales kickoff season is right around the corner, which means rallying your sales and go-to-market teams around new initiatives like new sales messaging for products, competitive talk tracks, and pricing changes. And that comes with a wave of training for your frontline people. Consider this, how are you equipping your sales team to handle the new conversations across all their selling scenarios? To do this, put your content into context. After you develop sales messaging that matches your strategic needs and selling scenarios, deploy them as sales enablement content. Provide your team with assets that align with the conversations they encounter regularly. Whether that's handling objections from cold prospects or selling more licenses to an existing customer, there are a predictable set of conversations all your sellers experience. You can start by giving them specific campaign, coaching, and customer-facing content to help them on several fronts. This will increase your adoption rates of the new messaging because it reinforces the new behavior long after the initial introduction. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.